Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Before we start today's episode, I want to address the coronavirus pandemic that is affecting each and every one of us around the world. It has been our goal from day one of starting this podcast to bring you stories of both hope and inspiration. Today, we have never taken that commitment more seriously. In the weeks that follow, or however long it takes us to get through this together, we will continue to share stories in the hopes that they will be a healthy distraction, that they will entertain you, that they will inspire you, and maybe even make you laugh when you need it the most. And most importantly, during this time of distance and isolation, that these stories and the people sharing them will help you feel a little more connected to the world. In this vein, today's interview is with Maya Amoyles. Two years ago, Maya's life looked pretty perfect. She was young and beautiful, traveling the world with a fascinating job and had recently moved from London to LA to enjoy the sunshine. Then, at the age of 28, she got a call that she had been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. It's a unique story for all the wiser in a sense. Many of our guests have come out the other end of something and are looking back and sharing their wisdom. Maya is in it. She's in the thick of it. The day before this interview, she had her 15th round of chemotherapy. At 30 years old, she is wise beyond her years and fighting for her life. I imagine as a young, healthy 20-something, it was unthinkable to Maya that she would be diagnosed with stage four cancer and having no idea how long she had to live. Today, Maya shares what has gotten her through her diagnosis and how in spite of complete uncertainty, she chooses to wake up each day with hope, grace, and faith. I think the timing of this conversation is meant to be because Maya's advice and wisdom are words we can all benefit from during our own time of unthinkable uncertainty. What Maya will share with you is that in the midst of all of the chaos and unknown, She found deep comfort in spending time with her friends and family, taking care of herself, having a sense of humor, and finding comfort in both the unknown and slowing down and doing less. Here's today's interview with the beautiful, inspiring, articulate, and funny Maya Amoyles. 
Welcome, Maya, to All the Wiser. Thank you. I normally don't do this, but I want to tell our listeners a little bit about how this interview came to be. We have a friend in common, Shannon, and she reached out to me and said, I would love to introduce you to my friend, Maya. I think she'd be an incredible guest on your podcast and connected us over email. But she didn't give me any background or context. She just said, I would really love for you to hear Maya's story directly from her. And so we met at a coffee shop here in LA and you walked in. First of all, I immediately knew it was you without even having, you know, looked up your picture online or anything. I just thought like, wow, you had like a hipster beanie and some like cool outfit. I'm like, she's like young and hip and like your skin was glowing. I'm like, this girl has got it going on. And then we sat down to talk and my jaw drops when I heard what you have been through over the past few years. I say that because I think it's just a lesson as people are walking by us on the street or we're chatting with them in a coffee shop that you have no idea what people are going through. Yeah. I should also say that we talked for, I think, an hour and a half straight. I felt like I had known you forever and that I had met somebody really extraordinary. So I am grateful that you are here and that our listening audience gets to meet you and hear your story just like I did at that coffee shop. I am grateful to be here. Thank you so much. How would you introduce yourself, Maya? I'm Maya. I am 30 years old, live in Los Angeles. I have worked at Google my whole professional career, bouncing around various areas of the company, currently at YouTube. And at 28, I was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And I think I would introduce myself now as saying I'm a human being trying to navigate what the world looks like with that. Tell me about the backdrop of your childhood. My childhood was pretty magical. So I think I would have to explain it in light of my parents, who are two of the most phenomenal souls I know. And they are from South Africa. And they left during apartheid and traveled around the world learning alternative medicine. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they started an integrative medicine practice there where they combine Western and Eastern medicine. And doing that in Cincinnati, Ohio, particularly 30 years ago, wasn't very popular. So I grew up very much thinking my parents practiced witchcraft and didn't love it. I, you know, we had dried mangoes and nuts in, in our house. And all I wanted to do was go over to my friends and eat Oreos and Captain Crunch. But so my house was a pretty magical place. And I have a deeper appreciation and respect for that now. But it was very, it was focused on health and wellness from the get-go about teaching my sister and I to love eating well and exercising and mindfulness, meditation. You know, my mom was bringing recycled grocery bags to the grocery store way before people like were even aware of doing that. So I felt like my childhood was defined by my parents creating a world that was almost ahead of its time. And my house was a what my parents called Jafrica, a blend of Africa and Japan. So it was always very eclectic. And I always wanted to just fit in and be normal and, you know, have Lunchables at summer camp and things like that. And that couldn't be force of a nightmare for my parents. So, so yeah, that was, that was my childhood and lots of time in South Africa because my extended family still lived there. So lots of international trips back there from Cincinnati, which I think growing up gave me such an international view of the world. And I want to talk about a specific trip and you can't brag about this, so I will and I'll bring (laughs) it up. But first of all, I know from the beginning, you 
I think it would be fair to say we're born in a sense a change maker and a fighter. Your mom named you after Maya Angelou and at 12 years old, you got on a plane by yourself, correct? Mm -hmm. And went to South Africa to start a nonprofit. Tell me about starting a nonprofit when you're 12 years old. It's interesting because looking back on it, it was the first time I really, I think, experienced flow in a sense of like, I just had this feeling I had to do something and I didn't question it. I just kept doing what I felt like I needed to do. And that actually started with an Oprah show where I saw an episode of a 18-month-old baby who'd been raped by a much, you know, an adult man because in South Africa, there's a lot of miseducation around AIDS and AIDS prevention. And one of the urban sort of legends there is that if you rape a virgin, you'll be cured of AIDS. So this baby who's 18 months old had been raped and, you know, couldn't walk and was facing a lifetime of trauma. And I started talking to my parents about it and I started asking them. I had seen poverty in South Africa going to visit my aunt and uncle that just didn't compare to anything like the United States. And also these drives that we would take up the mountains of South Africa and these shanty towns of poverty like I had never seen before. The thing that struck me the most was that these kids were jumping off a beaten down rusty truck, and but they were the happiest people that I had like really ever seen. And we obviously couldn't speak the same language. I was, I think, probably the second or third white person they'd ever seen in their entire lives. But I felt this connection with them like I'd never kind of had with another human being. So I got on a plane to South Africa to visit my aunt and uncle who own a resort or who owned a resort there and developed this plan in conjunction with them about how we could help this village that was 10 minutes away from their hotel. And I went back and I told my friends about it and we decided we were gonna raise $4,000 to build them a proper playground. And my aunt and uncle at that point were continuing to take over their leftover food from their hotel and the community of people that were helping was growing and growing. And basically to make a long story short, over the course of the next six years, we raised almost $2 million and were able to completely renovate the entire village and get our entire school community involved. I still can't, looking back, still can't believe it happened in a lot of ways. What did that teach you about yourself or show you about yourself at that age? I don't know if it taught me about myself. I think it taught me about the world and what's possible when you have the right intention and like when you're not doing something for your own sake. If you're truly in service to something and your intention is pure. Well, congratulations. You have shared with us this incredibly rich dynamic backdrop of your growing up and who you were as a young girl and teenager. Today, we're going to talk about what you've been through in the past few years. Can you paint the picture of where you were in your life pre-diagnosis? Yes. I had just moved back from London. I spent three years in London working on music marketing for YouTube and had a very romantic mid-20s chapter of traveling around Europe and living in London with a lot of my best friends from college, loving my job being very healthy and active. I ran four half marathons while I was there and loving life, really loving life. So I moved back to LA when I was 25 and I was trying to live the great LA lifestyle, green smoothies in the morning and runs along the beach and working for YouTube, very hard, running on a lot of adrenaline, I think. So you're really having this, sounds like beyond idyllic, 
chapter in your life. And I don't know like, if it was that, but it is in <laughs> retrospect, at least. You made it sound like yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Maybe, yeah, yeah the workaholism. Will, yeah, is, not, is the so, one thing. That's so idyllic, but the rest sounds, yeah, the rest sounds pretty magical. When did you start to experience signs and symptoms in your body that you thought something was wrong and what were those? So the first thing I started to notice was shoulder pain, which I thought was from being on my computer so much, sort of underneath my clavicle. I just felt this tightness. So I started stretching and I didn't really have any symptoms that seemed really out of the ordinary. I was bloated, but I was also traveling a lot and going to a lot of bachelorette parties and thought that was kind of normal and also stressed. I was tired, but I was also a workaholic, so I was jam-packing my schedule every minute I could. So I had a deep sense of exhaustion, but not in a way that a coffee or multiple coffees throughout the day couldn't fix. So I ran a half marathon in August. I was diagnosed in November, and I remember just running that, thinking like, wow, running has just gotten so hard. I have gotten so out of shape. But I didn't have any out of the ordinary, you know, when I would talk to my friends about feeling this way, everyone would feel the same way too. And I think that's one of the hardest parts about ovarian cancer in particular is it's such a silent disease sometimes. And for a lot of people, they just like don't catch it until it's too late. What do you remember about the day of your diagnosis? What did the doctor say to you and and how did you experience those words? So I had been for a CAT scan on Friday and I didn't get a call until Tuesday. So I thought the CAT scan was going to show a shoulder problem. (laughs) But in the back of my mind, I knew. So when I got the call, my heart just started racing. And my primary care doctor, who is fantastic, but she was really concerned. And she said, I just got off the phone with a radiologist and things don't look good. And you have fluid in your lungs, you have fluid all over your abdomen, and I've gotten you in to see an oncologist, you know, in an hour from now. And so I remember those words as just being like, you can't even go back to your day after that. Like I was in the middle of taking meetings from home and I've just done a workout at, at home in my living room and again, was living this very jam-packed life. So it just felt like going from a very busy noisy room into like complete silence and being like, oh my God, what do I do now? Like, and I remembered like I was having blinds installed (laughs) and I would just was sobbing and these guys came to have me to sign the forms and I was just sobbing. And I think they were so confused (laughs) and were like, good luck with your windows. You know, you're going to, you're going to love them. It's going to be okay. I think those words of hearing, you know, things don't look good like my stomach just dropped and that was that. And then everything from there feels like it was both frozen in time and and sped up all at once. You're 28. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, does she say it's stage four ovarian cancer? No, she implies it's cancer, that I need a biopsy. And I don't know anything else at that point. So I called my mom immediately. She, before I even finished saying the sentence. She said, I'm going to book a flight. I'll call you right back. And then I called my best friend who came over and went to the oncologist with me. It wasn't until at least the next day that I knew for sure it was cancer. And it was a day or two later that I found out it was stage four. And what prognosis did they give you at that point? I didn't ask for one. Why? 
I didn't want one. I knew it was bad. I knew when my oncologist called, I was sitting on the couch with my mom and my best friend, and she gave me the diagnosis, which was low-grade serous ovarian cancer. And when she hung up, my dad goes, fuck, I was really hoping it wasn't that. And I don't think he realized I was still on the phone. And my mom just started bursting out crying and said, you know, I wish this was me. And I knew to see them in that state that like my chances weren't good. I didn't need to know more than that. So I never Googled anything. I just knew that was going to send me down a rabbit hole that I couldn't handle. In spite handle. of working for Google. In spite of working for Google, I never once <laughs> Googled my own diagnosis until I knew I could handle it. And in retrospect, and then along the way, I learned how slim my chances were, but I'm so grateful I didn't know it at the time. Like I knew innately that it was bad because of that terrifying moment, but I didn't know how bad. And I knew that if I educated myself on what those numbers would be, I wouldn't be as ready to fight. I've been very lucky because I have this family around me that can help translate medical knowledge, which is like the greatest gift in the world for someone going through this. And I've chosen not to overwhelm or paralyze myself with more information. One of the first things my oncologist said to me when she gave me my actual diagnosis was, there's good news and there's bad news about your cancer. The good news is that it grows slowly. The bad news is it doesn't respond to chemo typically. And it was all over at that point. So, you know, reading between the lines there, I knew my odds weren't good of surviving long-term, but like at least I'd have some time. So I didn't need to know more than that. And along the way, I've learned more about cancer and what it takes to survive, but I've still never read horror stories. I've read some survivor stories, but it's hard to find too many people who are stage four premenopausal ovarian cancer survivors. And instead, I talked to everyone I know who had been affected by cancer my cousin, lots of colleagues, you know, aunts of people. And I kind of just went on a cancer learning tour. And that then brought into not just cancer, but people who had been through traumas and griefs, whether it's being diagnosed with Parkinson's or losing, you know, a family member. I felt like I just wanted to learn from people who had sat in the unknown and who had learned to live with it. And that's been my philosophy for getting through it. I definitely would love to connect more with women my age who are going through that because I think it's one thing to go through cancer when you're 60, which is when most women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It's a whole other thing to go through it before you're 30. I know during the early days that you're speaking of, you wrote about a dentist appointment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that appointment. So that appointment was right after I'd been diagnosed, but before I had started chemo. And I remember thinking, should I even go to this? Like, does it matter if I go to the dentist now? Like if I'm going to die? <laughs> and my sister said to me, well, you should go because once you start chemo, your gums are going to be very inflamed and it'll be good to take care of your hygiene first. So I went, it's crazy how emotional this is making me just now, but I went and, I, and they said, did you have any recent changes to your health? And I was like, how long do you have? Um, yes, I do. And I just started bawling and had my entire appointment 
in tears, kind of silently thinking about, is this the last time I'm ever going to go to the dentist? (laughs) And then I got it to check out and they asked me, you know, do you want to make your next appointment from six months from now? And I just froze. I like, I was like, am I going to be here in six months? Like, how do I even answer that question? And how for granted do we take that? Just to think about planning six months from now, your next dentist checkup. So through the dice and I said, yes, I'll make it, you know, I'll make it for May. But that moment really, I think was the first time it hit me like how fragile life is. You're a beautiful writer and you posted and blogged throughout this journey. And in one post you said, I quite literally collapsed into the arms of everyone I loved. What are the things that people did during this time that meant the most to you? That's such a great question because that's been, I think, one of the biggest lessons for me is how amazing people are and how I just want to pay that forward. And I get asked often, how can I help? And I think it's something we need to educate society on more is how to be more compassionate and how to help people get through grief and trauma. So I think first and foremost, just sitting in the unknown with me, like not saying you're going to beat this, you're going to get through it, just being willing to listen to me when I'm emotional like this and not project their own feelings onto the situation, just active listening. That's by far, in a way, the most helpful. Two is doing practical things. Like I got so showered with gifts, which was amazing. And I felt incredibly loved, but you do reach a point where you don't need any more socks or robes or candles. And, you know, like having a cleaning person, you know, a good family friend just provided their cleaning lady who is just a wonderful soul and was just amazing to have someone help clean up around the house, meals, like services, things that are more like take the burden off of you for living life. But you, I think the worst thing you can do is ask someone, how can I help? And you put the onus back on the person you're trying to help. And instead, just kind of recognizing what's missing and doing it for them. And then just showing up, you know, when it matters, chemo appointments, coming over to hang at my house um, without any agenda, just being there to listen. I mean, I think... Those are the most important elements. Walk us through, and I know it has to be high level because it's been countless at this point, Mm -hmm. some of the surgeries and treatments you've been through in the past two and a half years. So I, yesterday was my 15th round of chemo. I've had various drugs. I had six cycles of chemo in the beginning, which was a combination of Avastin, Taxol, and Carboplatin, which are three very sort of toxic powerful chemo drugs. I had a full hysterectomy and overectomy. I've been in the OR twice. I've had 15 rounds of chemo and I've been in ERs countless times with complications over the past 15 months. So it's been a roller coaster. I think most people who see me don't even think I'm sick and I can manage to live a very normal life. But then every time I'm kind of feeling like I calibrate back to normal, something weird will happen and I'll have another complication. So it's a very humbling journey. I feel like it's kind of like 
learning to surf. And every time you think you've got it or don't have enough respect for the ocean, it will smack you with another wave. So just learning to ride all of that. Well, the fact that we're sitting here, I went, it's February 20th. Mm-hmm. I was doing my research to prepare for the interview like any good podcaster <laughs> would. And on the blog that your family and friends write about your journey, and I see that February 13th, you were hospitalized and you're in a hospital in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And it's seven days later. Mm-hmm. When you walked in, you said you were in the hospital for five days mm-hmm. and had just gotten out on Monday. Mm-hmm. And that is to some extent, the regular for you now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. How do you deal with the uncertainty of all of that? And I know you were on a healing trip. You were on a meditation (laughs) trip. Yes. Yes. The irony of my week last week was pretty hilarious, but I was on a meditation retreat and started throwing up in the middle of the night pretty uncontrollably and had my sister come rescue me and ended up in the hospital for five days. You know, at that point, it's just a choice. It's like, do I get frustrated that I didn't get to do all these things and that every time I try and plan my life back into the direction I want it to be, it feels like it throws me off a different course and I can have frustration about that and I can resist it or I can just surrender to it and say, you know what, there's as much to learn from this experience being in the hospital as there was in the mountains of Santa Cruz. And if I'm not applying what I'm learning throughout this journey to my actual life, then what's the point? So I feel like that's how I've managed to cope is just truly surrendering to things when they happen and not grasping to resist them. And sometimes that means you're not doing anything that you thought you wanted to do, but you can find a lot of beauty in the detour that you take. Your parents mm-hmm. and your sister mm-hmm. are all doctors. Mm-hmm. You are the baby and the black sheep who did not go into medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what role have they played and do they continue to play in your healing? They are my translators of everything. When I got diagnosed, my dad said, we're going to be your iron dome and your job is to just focus on getting better and we're going to be your iron dome to protect you around you. And I feel like that's what they are. So they're the ones who, (laughs) they don't need to do the Googling because they know it but they help guide me on all of the physical elements of this journey, whether it's clinical trials to get involved in or ways to improve my diet. But they basically make it so that I don't have to spend time questioning a lot of the things that cancer patients have to do. For me, it's been incredible to experience them as doctors because I've always seen them as doctors, if that makes sense. Like growing up, I've had countless people come up to me and say, you know, your parents saved my life for one reason or the other. But to experience that firsthand, like as a patient and same with my sister to see her in action, she's like Sherlock Holmes when something goes wrong and she can kind of decipher what's going on and how to help. So they play my advocates, they play my caretakers and they play sort of the MVPs of of my of my healthcare team. Well, the link to your past that you were born to a family of healers, mm-hmm. that your witchcraft parents mm-hmm. taught you all of these modalities that you're now using mm-hmm. to fight for your health and your life. Mm-hmm. It's pretty incredible mm-hmm. that that's how you were raised and that's who you're surrounded by right now. What was your experience of as I said, when you walk in a room, you're beautiful and you look young and beautiful and vibrant. So your experience of losing your hair, your femininity, 
healthy relationship with vanity, I think people could say it doesn't matter, but I imagine that that is really, you know, a process. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on it. One is that I think it's good to invest in your vanity sometimes to a healthy degree, like looking good to feel good. There's no shame in that. And I think it's a sometimes we're kind of poo-pooed, like women are poo-pooed in society for doing that, but having a great blowout or, you know, buying yourself a new outfit, like doing things to like nourish your self-confidence is so important. And that doesn't go away when you get, you know, a bad diagnosis. And I think sometimes it can be fake it till you make it. And, you know, I've definitely noticed a correlation between the days I like brush my hair and put on anything other than sweatpants and how that can affect your self-confidence and the way you move in the world and in response, the way the world responds to you. So I don't think there's any shame in that. And for me, it's actually been a huge part of coping with my diagnosis is maintaining, you know, my image has changed a lot as I've lost my eyebrows and lost my hair and gained weight and lost weight and all of that. But it's been really important to me to be able to look normal At the same time, it's been really important to me to learn to let go of that stuff and know that it's not me and know that, you know, I can look completely different and people will still love me. A lot of hospital visits, chemo, radiation, drugs, IV drugs, you name it. What are, outside of Western medicine, the healing modalities that have been the most impactful to you? I think one of the most surprising things about my diagnosis was that in a lot of ways, I was doing all of the stuff that they tell you to do. So I was frustrated that there weren't a lot of areas of my life that I felt needed sort of health improvement. I've always been predominantly plant-based, eaten a pretty healthy diet, exercise well, I meditate. I've been using natural deodorant since I was 18. So I got a bit frustrated going through the what else can I be doing journey or what have I missed or why has this happened? So for me, just context for answering that question is it was really important to know that there's no perfect patient and there's nothing I did to cause this. And I needed to get out of the mindset of like, I did something wrong or there's something I could be doing better to fix this and instead take a stance of, People are going to throw a lot of different suggestions my way on what I should be doing. And my job is to filter what feels right for me and to be open-minded about doing various things. But if I'm not drinking rock water and chlorophyll and wheatgrass shots every day, it's okay. So for me, Western medicine has been very instrumental. Chemo, all of my amazing team of doctors and surgeons have been far and away, literally life-saving. The things that I've done on top of that are, I think one, deepening my spiritual practice and relationship to feeling like connected to something bigger than me, meditating twice a day, pretty religiously, a good supplement vitamin routine, continuing to get in nature and be outside and work out and gratitude journaling like every single day especially on the days I don't want to, especially on the days I'm in the hospital. That for me has been like a sacred practice. I know another major healing modality is honeybee. Mm. Tell me about honeybee and what that has meant to you as you've been living with and healing from cancer. Mm -hmm. So I got honey 
in January. I was diagnosed in November and I got her online. It was the first day I spent any time with myself. My parents went to Laguna and when I came back, I was like, I bought a dog (laughs) online. I've always wanted a puppy and I just, you know, I was like, now's the time. And therapy dogs are real. They are like such amazing creatures. And she's been such a source of joy and support for me throughout this. And Oprah calls dogs guardians of being. And I think that's very true. So she's managed to keep me present and active and laughing. Yeah, she's pretty cute. I've seen pictures. She's really cute. (laughs) She's no waffles, but she's pretty cute. (laughs) Yes. I just met my dog waffles with a cone on his head. (laughs) There are so many layers to what you have been through and we've touched on a lot of them. But one piece I know is fertility mm-hmm. and how in particular, you know, this type of cancer, you are young and I know had that vision for your future. How would you explain that loss and experiencing that loss? Yeah, I had a very short decision window for that. I basically had six hours to decide whether I wanted to prolong chemo and do a very risky egg retrieval or start chemo and, you know, give up the chance of ever having a family. And at that point, it just wasn't even a decision. It was like so clear that it was medically a bad decision to go about doing that surgery. It was truly a life or death thing. So I ripped that Band-Aid pretty quickly and I've tried to just not look back because it's so not within my control. And I feel like there are a lot of different ways to have a family in today's world. And I mean, even though I'm not married, I feel like I have a family of friends and actual family that like it just feels so full. And I try and focus on that rather than the loss of the traditional thing that I had envisioned for myself. I, you know, didn't think I would be going through menopause with my mom. It's not not what I anticipated, but like you can just laugh and make the most of it. Well, I think you put it so beautifully that there's so many ways to create a loving family around you. So I'm glad that you feel that in such a real way. As a young cancer patient Mm -hmm. in and out of hospitals and somebody who also has this greater understanding of healing in the outside world, are there things that you wish were different within the walls of a hospital or vision you have of how it in the future, I think could be different or better. Mm -hmm. I I think to some extent you're a visionary, certainly starting a nonprofit at 12, you have visions about things that you believe can happen. Yeah. I think the number one thing is treating the patient and not the disease. It's about your diet. It's about your mindset. It's about the combination of everything within your body. So That's the number one thing I would say from a practical care perspective. And then just compassion. I mean, I think nurses are like angels that walk the earth and the patience and kindness that they've had with me in hospitals like goes the farthest way, I think, in healing. And the conversations I've had with porters into the people in hospitals like are truly phenomenal. And I wish that that kindness and compassion and awareness could actually transcend the walls of hospitals to everyone. Because ironically, I always feel the most like connected or enlightened sometimes when I've had these emergency stints, because it's like forces you to confront life in a different way. And it expands your consciousness. And if you're open to that, you can learn so much. We talked about the people that were really close to you, Mm -hmm. the arms you fell into. 
And you touched on going back to work and that that has been harder than you imagined for our listeners, for the people in their lives, maybe that they don't know as well, or that are colleagues. I think sometimes knowing that somebody is really sick or suffering or has experienced, you know, tremendous trauma. It's unnerving when you see them. Yeah. You change the way you show up and your energy. Totally. I'm curious how you experience that. How did you experience people experiencing you mm-hmm. differently? Mm-hmm. What did that feel like? Um, it depended on, or it depends on a couple of things. One, if they have chosen to see me, like if they're coming to visit me or if I've, I run into someone. And I think it's much harder when I run into someone and it's not like sort of a mutually agreed upon thing. And a lot of people will just ignore it (laughs) and talk about themselves the whole time and not ask me how I'm doing. And we make small talk and that's that. Or some people will dive, you know, straight into it. And for me personally, I always find that it's easier to confront it right away. I feel much less awkward if people just say, I heard what you've been going through. How are you doing? And then leave it to me to answer. Like whether I say, I'm doing great. Like I'm actually feeling really well. Thanks for asking. Or if I say, I'm actually really struggling. And you know, it's up to me to decide how deep I want to go, but I find it much more awkward to ignore it. And a lot of it is just sort of an energetic thing. It's like, I can see when people are seeing me as cancer rather than seeing me as Maya. But I also have compassion for those people because I know they probably haven't had a lot of experience in dealing with someone who's going through something. And it doesn't have to be cancer. I think it's any sort of trauma or pain. And until you've gotten comfortable just like sitting in that, then I think it's hard to know how to navigate it. And that's when the awkward conversations happen. (laughs) Where does your health stand today? So I am sort of trending in the right direction. There is something called CA-125, which is your tumor marker, which they like to be below 20. And mine started at over 2000 when I was diagnosed. And now last time I got my numbers, it was like hovering around 200. So it seems as though things are trending in the right direction. But as I said, I've really come to think of cancer as like the ocean that you always have to have respect for. And Every time I feel like I've tried to close the chapter on it, so to speak, it throws me for a loop. So I never like to say, you know, this is never going to be over for me. This is a long distance race. And if I got to the state where I wasn't showing any detectable form of disease, I still think it's a lifestyle that I'm going to have to manage because I'm going to have lifelong side effects. So I would say state of health is positive. I feel good but I'm always cautious about answering that question. What role has faith played in this journey? Interesting you can ask that because that was a big theme for me on the meditation retreat. And we talked a lot about faith, the definition of faith being reaching out to a hand to hold and knowing it's there. And I thought that was like a really beautiful way of phrasing it. And I think I've never really had a role of like prayer in my life until very recently, basically in the last couple of weeks. And now I'm embracing it as something that I want to have in my life in a way that I never did before because I was uncomfortable with religion. And now I'm, I'm comfortable with it in the sense that I feel like we're all one and I feel like we're all here for a greater purpose. And I think that if you, however you choose to manifest faith in your life through that is... A, healthy thing and it's good for you and it's good for the world. I agree. You are categorically described by your friends and family as an optimist and that you can make 
light of most anything. <laughs> what role has humor played in all of this? Humor is huge, like huge. And I mean, I feel we all take ourselves way too seriously, like all the time. Sometimes I just laugh at that. And when I'm in the most like acute situations, like one night I fainted while I was brushing my teeth in the middle of the night and split my chin open and faint, like trying to get to my sister's door. I fainted four more times. And by the time I'd arrived at her door, I was just like a total, I, I don't remember because I had like basically passed out five times. And my brother-in-law had to carry me down the stairs as my chin was like gushing blood. And I just go, well, this gives a whole new meaning to keeping your chin up. And I feel like <laughs> those moments, like it's just so important to laugh. And my family, we've had a lot of tears, but we've also had like a lot of good times. So I think finding ways to laugh, watching comedy specials, joking about yourself, joking about the situation is like absolutely instrumental to getting through it. Throughout the process, and you talked about this, one of your big rituals is this practice of writing down three things you're grateful for. Mm -hmm. And you and I talked about it when we met mm -hmm. um, about how mundane they are. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you now observe mm. and think about and write that you would not have done at 27? I think a lot more focus on the very small things. And I feel like that's been a bigger lesson for me is that happiness really comes from the small moments, not the big ones. It's not the promotions and the achievement awards and the accolades. It's the my mom bringing me a cup of coffee in bed or it being like the sun beating on your back or catching up with a friend sporadically on the phone. So I feel like it's it's gone more into the minutia rather than 27-year-old Maya might be journaling about like professional accomplishments or much more ego-driven things. It's that. And then it's things that I've had heightened awareness to because of what I'm going through. So when I was started chemo, I was doing cold caps to help keep my hair and you couldn't touch your hair for six months. I couldn't. And so being able to wrap my hair in a towel when I get out of the shower is something I really appreciate or being able to wear a hat or put my hair in a ponytail, things that I just didn't even know were things to be grateful before. I try and still cultivate that. How has this changed your relationship with mortality? Absolutely. I think it comes down to what matters in your life when you're not here. And to me, that's relationships and the love that you put out in the world. And I think before... I was much more focused on getting somewhere or living up to an image of what I, people thought of me. And now I'm much more focused on being a person that I want to be regardless or not, if I get credit for it, like that I'm living a life that it's attracting the things I want rather than promoting them, if that makes sense. And really focusing on how you do anything is how you do everything. So living a much more calm, grounded life and sort of energy that I'm leaving behind in the world is more important to me than where I get in my career. What is the most important thing that cancer has taught you? Can I say three things? Yes. <laughs> three is my lucky number. So I created these three pillars for myself when I was in the hospital once because I felt like I needed something to keep coming back to in terms of how my perspective has shifted on the world. And the three things in terms of what I would be gratitude journaling about a 27 versus 30. And the three philosophies I came up with were one, to cultivate more awe and wonder. And I think that 
is because as we grow up in our lives, we lose a lot of the magic that we have as kids and we're not as awestruck by things as we should be. Like getting on an airplane isn't just getting on an airplane to go somewhere. It's like you're flying through the air. And I want to be more conscious of how I'm cultivating that in my life and making sure I have those opportunities that push me outside of my comfort zone, whether it's going to retreats, planning really amazing experiences with my friends or just being like of the world. So that was number one. Number two was making space because beforehand I was just crazy about jam-packing my schedule with productivity. And I think I mistook productivity for fulfillment. And now I'm much more, how do I create more space around this moment? How do I be more present in this moment? Like even this morning, I was meant to have an appointment at eight and then was going to like try and do an errand on my way here. And I'm like, no, Maya, don't try and jam pack your moment. You just had chemo yesterday. Just sleep in and, you know, enjoy the morning. And so I try and be much more stringent with myself about how I enforce that, particularly going back to work. And I should say, she's so thoughtful that she sent an email. I'm stopping. Can I bring you a coffee? And brought me a beautiful coffee. (laughs) Because I had time to do it. (laughs) That was my pleasure. And then the third is to give more meaningfully, which, you know, giving back, I think has been a huge theme in my life. But I feel like there are a lot of ways to give back. And for me, part of that is financial and finding causes that I'm passionate about and how to support them. Part of that is time. And then a lot of it is like I was saying, just being more present with people and giving them my full attention and compassion and being more patient and remembering that we're all human and all suffering in our own ways. So those are the three things that like if I were to distill what cancer has taught me, that's how I've tried to kind of synthesize my experience. We talked about when we met in person that most of these interviews are with people who, not all by any means, but the majority are people who are sort of on the other end of something Mm -hmm. and they're looking back Mm -hmm. and reflecting Mm -hmm. and sharing their wisdom coming out through something. 10 years from today, what do you hope to look back and share? Mm. I hope that my pain has helped others get through their own whatever it may be. And I think there's so much to be learned in this experience and that doesn't have to do with cancer. So I look forward to figuring out (laughs) what that is and then applying it to help people get through their own. And I also just hope that I'm still living a life where I'm living my three pillars. Beautiful. Maya, you are beautiful inside and out. And I'm just so grateful to have met you and that you're here today having this conversation with me Likewise, in person. So we do a little thing called rapid fire. I already I know love the- rapid fire. This is like one of my favorite parts of the show. <laughs> I know the answer to the first one. Uh-huh. Damn it. I need a new one. Favorite childhood cereal. It depends. We were only allowed to have sugary cereal when we were on vacation. So I'm going to go with my vacation cereal, which was Cocoa Pebbles. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Captain Crunch. I know. That's the first thing that came to mind. Also, that was my sister. I was Cocoa Pebbles girl. Biggest vice? Casamigos tequila. Favorite song? Anything Justin Timberlake. Best way to spend a Sunday? A healthy mixture of relaxed and productive. Favorite movie? Mm, so many. Depends on the time of year. If it's Christmas time, love actually. Right now, I'm going to say Dead Poets Society. So two good ones. 
This is not a loaded question, but favorite podcast. Obviously all the wiser (laughs) and close behind that Super Soul Sunday. So good. (laughs) Super Soul Sunday. Everyone should listen. Best piece of advice you have been given. How you do anything is how you do everything. Great. Again, you are just a really special human being. I'm so glad that you were brought into my life. And I'm so grateful that you made the time and that thousands of people around the world get to hear your story just like I did. I'm really grateful to be here and for you meeting you and you having me on. So thank you very much. All right. Now my producer is going to make us shoot some awkward videos. So we're going to stop recording. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Maya wisely chose to support the Beauty Bus Foundation in honor of today's conversation. You heard her talk about what it's like to lose your hair, your eyebrows, and how simply getting out of your sweatpants can make all the difference. When people are really sick and living in hospitals or homebound, simple things like getting a haircut can become nearly impossible. And we know as simple as these things are, they make us feel better. And the beauty bus does just this. Driving around the city, bringing lighthearted and pampering moments to those who need it the most. To date, they have created 18,000 of these moments, providing free beauty services to men, women, and children who are seriously ill. Their beauty clients range in age from one to 101. To find out more about their work, you can find them online at beautybus.org. As I shared, Maya is a beautiful writer. If you want to check out some of her writing and see a bunch more pictures of Maya and her friends and family, you can follow her journey on her CaringBridge page. Just go to caringbridge.org and search for Maya and her last name is spelled A-M-O-I-L-S. We will also link to everything mentioned in our show notes. I hope some of Maya's words and wisdom were comforting or helpful to you during this uncertain time. Be well, my friends, and God bless. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcasts. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.